Digital Dreamers, welcome to today's episode. In my today's episode, I am hosting Professor of Marketing from Cambridge Judge Business School, Jaydeep Prabhu. He is also Director of Center of India and Global Business Fellow of Clare College. And his academic records are extensive. Few mentions being he is into international business, marketing strategy and innovation. He had worked extensively in cross-national issues concerning the antecedents and consequence of radical innovation in high-tech contexts such as banking, pharmaceutical, biotechnology. If I go through his CV, it will take me over an hour to read through it. He had so many accomplishments and gems across his career. If that was not enough, he had written many books, Fuming, Jugar Innovation, Frugal Innovation, and he has published his latest book recently, How Should a Government Be? We have touched based upon this throughout our interview, and it was amazing, such a wealth of knowledge to get into. Please go ahead and enjoy the episode. It would be amazing, I promise you. Hi, Jaydeep. Thanks for coming into my podcast. Thanks for sharing your precious, precious time with uh, me and my audience. So I will go straight away into the question. So tell us a little bit about your Genesis story and how you became this professor, this distinguished professor in Cambridge and in marketing area. Over to you. Yeah, thank you, Nairobi. Really good to join you. And thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. Uh, yeah, my name is Jadi Prabhu. I'm a professor of marketing uh, and also have a chair in Indian business at uh, the University of Cambridge in the Judge Business School. Uh, I grew up in India. Uh, I studied uh, engineering as an undergraduate in India. Uh, I then went to the US and I switched to business. I got a PhD in marketing at the University of Southern California in LA. I taught at UCLA and Tilburg University in the Netherlands before coming to the UK. I was in Cambridge for a few years, then I went to Imperial College in London, and then I returned to Cambridge to take up my current position. And, uh, you know, I teach marketing at different levels from undergraduates to senior executives. Uh, but my area of research is actually innovation. I've, that's what I've spent my career studying. Uh, in the first part of my career, I studied innovation in large Western corporations. Then I became interested in innovation in emerging countries like India, where I grew up. Uh, and that's when I became interested in frugal innovation. And that's probably what I'm best known for at the moment is my research and writing on frugal innovation, both in the private sector as well as in, in government. I will come back to frugal innovation later on. But before that, I will just touch base on the uh, another question, because when you were saying about you have studied uh, in US and then came back to UK and have all sort of cultural context. So what is your, like, what are the things which comes to your mind in terms of culture and innovation? And I know this is something you are also interested in this particular topic in. So what's your take on, like, how do you segregate if there is a differences between the UK, US, or the Indian or the South Asian market? Oh, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. A lot of my research uh, has focused on this question of culture, specifically a culture of innovation. Uh, both within an organization at the organizational or company level, but also across countries or at the country level. Uh, 
Um, and, you know, of course, we can all have our views and I have my own views about, you know, what it is about India that helps or hurts innovation uh, re relative to the US, relative to Europe or the UK. And I think everybody has their views, right? You might say that, uh, you know, Americans are very entrepreneurial. There's a view that uh, they're, they're good at risk-taking. In fact, their whole culture and their society encourages a level of risk-taking. There is no big stigma around failure. Uh, so people can try, fail, and then try again. And at some point they will succeed, of course, if you keep trying and you learn. Whereas other cultures may be more traditional. Uh, India may be seen as being more conservative in that sense that there may be uh, more of a kind of skepticism about um, entrepreneurship, at least traditionally. Uh, it's seen as being risky and a bit dodgy even and perhaps frowned upon. Uh, but I think that is changing. I think uh, that young people in India are very different from my generation. Many of them uh, are very entrepreneurial, very keen on entrepreneurship and are doing very impressive things in that space. So they're changing the view of being entrepreneurial and innovative. And I think in some ways the UK, you might say, sits somewhere in between. It is also in some ways a traditional society uh, with a long history where perhaps traditionally risk uh, was frowned upon uh, and people may have been more cautious, but it also has a tradition of a lot of invention, people trying out new things. Uh, and we see again, it's a current situation. We see a lot of entrepreneurial activity, a lot of tech activity. So uh, my conclusion is that it's really not the country that matters. It's the company that matters. Uh, and I've based that on research that I have done, um, uh, particularly a paper that I wrote in 2009, where we looked at 17 countries around the world, uh, including India, China, uh, Taiwan, et cetera. But we also looked at Western countries like the US, UK, and so on. And we looked at companies uh, within these countries. And we measured culture at both the country level and the company level. And we found that it was culture at the company level that made the most difference to how innovative a company was, regardless of where they were. So you could be from an innovative country and still not innovate as a company if you don't have the right culture. And you could be from a non-innovative country, but have a very innovative culture within your company and be innovative. So that's my take on that question. No, that's completely relatable because I have worked with US clients like I have not into the tech entrepreneur side but I have worked on the technical side with the US clients and now currently last five and a half years it's all UK predominant based client and I am from Indian origin so I do handle like work with people in the business in India as well so that kind of had been my similar take but in obviously in big corporate sector my observation is only based on that ecosystem not anything else but yeah it's good to know for someone who had worked and actually have researched and statistics to base that data on thank you for that so I will now go to the next question which is something you mentioned in your introduction that you are known for the Jugar, and I know you have written a book on it called Jugar Innovation. And recently I saw a, a post from your site where you said Harvard Business Review is also introducing that concept of uh, you know, improvising an effective solution using limited resources for people who doesn't understand the word uh, in context of that. Uh, 
they are the western people are getting introduced to that so just elaborate on that what 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 what's your take and how you're passionate about that particular topic yeah yeah thank you so you know i i said how you know i studied in the first part of my career innovation in large western companies and um, at least when i was studying that you know so the 20th century model uh, the approach was very structured they'd have big teams it was expensive uh, it would take time you know so uh, innovation in that context was expensive structured and time consuming and that's how i thought it was that's what we you know uh, wrote about in our textbooks and in our papers and then as i said i went to india uh, to really look at uh, innovation in countries like india in around 2008 that's when i started to do that india china i started looking at some african economies latin american economies and i realized that in those countries those uh, relatively resource poor with very large relatively low income populations that were growing very fast innovation was done very differently it was very frugal people were having to do more with limited resources as you said it was a uh, very flexible a lot of uh, improvisation and lateral thinking and it was kind of inclusive trying to bring people who are outside the formal economy into the formal economy so i found that fascinating and my co-authors and i we uh, started to blog about it including on hbr.org that's what you were referring to that was one of our first articles on the online platform writing about jugard which got a lot of uh, you know interesting responses both positive and negative from people around the world so we started looking at that and then we ended up writing a book about uh, that phenomenon and we called it jugad innovation because at least in india when you ask people how they would describe this approach they use that hindi word jugad um and so that book came out in 2012 it was all about what is happening in emerging economies and how can western companies going to those countries learn from their local competitors so is there any any stories which sticks to your mind like one example of like uh, for my audience it's something which kind of comes to mind can you elaborate on that please? absolutely i'll give you two i mean i can give you many but i'll just give you yes, two go ahead. <laughs> one is at the very grassroots level you know which which you would see in indian villages and not just in indian villages you would see this in the countryside in most countries particularly developing countries where people there have to solve their own problems using the limited resources they have there and uh, so the example we start our book with is somebody like that mansukh bhai he's from a village in gujarat he's a potter and in 2001 uh, they had a very bad earthquake in gujarat a lot of people lost their household possessions including the matkas the clay pots in which they store water and uh, one day he opened the local newspaper and he saw a picture of a matka that was broken and the caption read poor man's fridge broken it was as a joke you know they were making a joke but he actually thought about it and said what if i make a poor man's fridge like a box of clay you can have the the reservoir for water on the top and then in the box below you can have fruit and vegetables you can store them and then when the water evaporates on the walls it will keep them fresh and so he did that so that's pretty impressive uh, and we write about that uh you know someone using the resources in his context to come up with something that's valuable to people like himself the other example i'll give is from africa which is at a different level but it's the same principle using what you've got to solve problems 
in a in a in a faster, better, cheaper way. And this is an example of Vodafone introducing a service uh, that could for people to use on their mobiles, which would allow somebody in a village in Kenya, uh, a lady, to call her son, phone her son who's working in Nairobi and working, not only to speak to him, but ask him to text money home in an emergency. And he could just text, use his phone and text message to send eFloat money, which she could receive onto her phone and then cash it in the local corner shop in her village, which would be the M-Pesa agent. And that is a very important service for people in where you're migrant labor and so on in countries like Kenya. And it was done very frugally because essentially Vodafone already just used what was already there. People already had mobile phones. They were already texting each other. They had corner shops in their villages. They just joined the dots to come up with the solution. Uh, and that's another, to me, very great example of this idea of frugally coming up with a solution that makes a big difference to people. Oh, that's a very wonderful uh, example. And especially the first one I have seen about it or read about it in different. And nowadays people are talking about environmental, social and corporate impact of it. And it kind of ticked the box for all of them, isn't it? It's made of mud, you are using water and you're saving electricity, less carbon footprint. So you're just ticking literally all the box and it's from a simple idea of a, of a potter. This, that's amazing to know. So how do you think, like, so now I will pivot to the tech startup ecosystem in UK. And I know you are from Cambridge, you're a professor in Cambridge and you're very, very close to that entire environment of it. So when I was doing a little bit of research or last for a couple of months when I was looking into the interesting startups, one of the observation, and it is only local to the UK, is that most of those new tech startups are coming from Oxford and Cambridge in those circles. If you see the founder of it, obviously both the areas, both the places are close to London. That's one thing of it. One of the things I think it contributes to it, but it's very predominant only to those elite institutions. So it feels like it's a table which is kind of 80 to 90% booked by that elite institutions. And I think when I come from a perspective of an immigrant and I know a lot of people, not only from India, from entire Europe come to UK for, and they also try to be part of that ecosystems and potentially people a lot of them probably would not study in those particular colleges, but have different background. So what, what's your take on it? What's your feedback or what's your views on that? Again, great question, wonderful question. And actually that links to a follow-up book that we wrote after Jugard, uh, my co-authors and I. So as I said, Jugard was 2012. It was about emerging markets. But after that book came out, we saw there was a lot of interest in this idea of frugal innovation in the West for the West. So uh, we wrote a follow-up book in 2015 called Frugal Innovation, How to Do Better with Less, which is all about what was happening in the West, including in places like Cambridge. And basically what we had discovered was that now in the West, and now of course it's spread everywhere in the world, but at that time in the West, we were seeing that small teams, sometimes of our students in places like Cambridge, could do things that only large companies or the government could have done 10 or 20 years before, 
not only in software. So obviously, you know, things like WhatsApp, four uh, guys came up with WhatsApp in the US uh, in less than a year uh, with about 250K seed funding. And then, of course, it grew massive and they sold it for $20 billion, right? So you can see that in software, but you can also see it in hardware. Uh, and that's an example from Cambridge, where I teach one of our students, mature students, uh, Eben Upton, uh, was doing his executive MBA, part-time MBA with us while he was teaching in the computer science department in the university. And he and his colleagues in computer science had started to worry that fewer young people in the UK were applying to Cambridge to study computer science. And even those who applied had never opened the computer to tinker with it or done any coding. And so they said, you know, what if we come up with a basic computer, like a microprocessor, you know, just the essence, they will have to tinker, they'll have to code, and it'll be so cheap that if they break it, it wouldn't be a problem. So they came up with this Raspberry Pi, it was called, little microprocessor, uh, which initially was $30, they now have a $5 version. And, you know, they thought they would sell a few thousand, they sold millions. So, you know, you, you see this software, hardware, and small teams doing things in these spaces like make spaces or tech shops or fab labs, they're called, where you have access to all these tools, including 3D printers, laser cutters, circuit board printers. And then, of course, you can do crowdfunding, you can distribute your product through Amazon, you can use social media to promote it. So the whole process of coming up with an idea, developing a prototype, and then commercializing your innovation is now available to many of our students. And so we nurture that. We encourage that within our business school. We try to give them a space to, to develop that, uh, those kinds of enterprises. We have an accelerator. We have mentors. We have a whole program for them. We have venture creation weekends. And really, that is, in a sense, how places like Cambridge nurture a, a kind of tech ecosystem. First of all, we attract people like that to come and study here. Then they get opportunities to meet other people to form these teams. And then while they're studying, they can you know, get insights, training, practice, get in front of potential customers, investors, you know, serial entrepreneurs, and so on. So that is how this place works, a place like Cambridge. I imagine Oxford is very similar. I've taught at Imperial in London, it's similar. So there is a uh, critical mass of these universities that have all the ingredients needed to create this kind of ecosystem. Now, you're right that if you're not in that ecosystem, how do you break in? And we are aware of that. Uh, here in Cambridge, we are aware that not everybody in Cambridge is part of Cambridge University. There are other university students. We have another university, Anglia Ruskin, which is right next to where I live. We had the Open University. We have the University of Third Age. So you have people, students from other universities. Uh, they are interested in entrepreneurship. You could have people who are not in the university, uh, not students, but are interested in entrepreneurship. So we try to nurture those people in our accelerator and our business school. It is, you don't have to be a student of Cambridge University. You don't even have to be a student. You just have to have some link with Cambridge, like you live in Cambridge. And if your idea and your team is a good one, we will accelerate it. So um, it may be feel as if from the outside, you know, you have to break into this network. All networks feel that way. 
but actually uh, my experience and my feeling is that it is a surprisingly open atmosphere but probably you would have to be based in cambridge you don't have to be at the university you don't have to be a student uh, but uh, you would have to be based in cambridge because these networks are about people knowing people meeting people and if you were based here you would be able to break into the into the network uh, provided you have an interesting idea that's the key thing and you are motivated no like that you know because because they're there if someone from cambridge is listening they will probably know about it and people like nowadays with technology people are quite mobile in terms of moving around the town so probably that would be a space and i personally see well when platform like clubhouse which get introduced technology is a big big agent of democratizing things so literally Absolutely. like when i was part of this club and i think one thing from a very outsider because i have not studies in in these colleges myself so one of the things i have seen people who have not studied in this colleges but like they're very intimidated by the fact that these are people from oxford or cambridge so i will not talk to them probably i am not welcome being a south asian and being a woman in a very very male dominant industry which i work in as well probably most industries are i have a very big a theory which is like you make table for yourself if no one is inviting you you go and talk to them everyone will not accept it just make your space at that and start talking to people uh i mean it's kind of like people are generous people will open up to you it's hard i'll not say it's easy i like i personally have doing going through such an experience so i know that but it happens but it's kind of really good to know from someone who is inside that ecosystem that it is accessible it doesn't it should not feel like it's not accessible to everyone out there So absolutely i think you have put your finger on it and that's the attitude to have you're right they're not uh there's under representation from women uh in general in business and entrepreneurship i would say around the world there's under representation obviously from you know of immigrants potentially although by the way immigrants are the most entrepreneurial and inventive people in any culture because they are a particular type of person you know they uh, uh, will try they have overcome odds simply by moving and that's very important in entrepreneurship is to be able to overcome odds to have that will to uh, to to achieve something um so you're absolutely right you have to present yourself uh, you know and have something to offer and then people will respond and now technology enables you to do that and your answer kind of give me a perfect segue to uh, my follow up question because you say when immigrants come so when immigrants come the policy the government policy what are the infrastructure people are providing what the rules at that point of time or what is the timing plays a major factor the visa rule the immigration rules how it happens so post brexit in 5th april 2021 uh, where uh, you will see a very new set of rules coming in i am not a lawyer so i'll not comment on it but i have read it very very thoroughly through which so your book is also the next book you have written is the latest one which you have written is like how should a government be and the new uh, like how how it plays into the power of it so can you tie up that or like have a follow up comment on that what's yeah. your take on this entire new thing which is going on 
Yeah, very nice segue. And in fact, the way you segue into the question is a bit like how my own thinking went. So Jugard was 2012 about emerging markets. 2015 was frugal innovation, still in the private sector in the West. And then, you know, whenever I talked about those two books uh, to any audience, somebody would ask me the question, so what does this mean for governments, you know? Uh, and I kept thinking about that. And many times they would tell me what they thought it meant for governments, you know, why aren't governments doing this or they are doing it, you know, things like that. So that's when I started working on uh, this most recent book that you mentioned, yeah, how should a government be the new levers of state power? Um, and I started to think that, okay, uh, there are probably two aspects to that. One is how should the government be internally, how it should do its own work as an organization, how should it be more responsive to its citizens, and also people who are not its citizens, but in, in its economy, like immigrants, right? Because now people can move around and high talent is, you know, a commodity that countries are competing for. So how should a government be internally, but how should a government manage its economy as well? What kind of policies, like you were saying, what kind of policies to encourage startups to attract the best talent, to keep the best talent, what kind of visa regime, all these kinds of things matter a lot. How does it create ecosystems like, you know, Oxford and Cambridge and London, but how does it make sure that other places are not left behind, you know, how is it inclusive? So these are very important questions that I started to think about and that then made their way into, into, into the book, uh, into this new book that just came out. And, and uh, I see that technology has a very big role to play, just like in the private sector, companies, as I was saying, small companies, large companies have now the tools uh, which are available to everyone to, to innovate faster, better and cheaper. Governments do have the same tools. They can be doing the same thing to deliver whatever services there might be to us, you know, social security, social services, healthcare. If you think about COVID, their governments have had to do lots of things, including make payments to people, social security payments, how to do that in an efficient, effective way that's also uh, transparent, open, there's no fraud in the system. They can use and are using technologies and also forms of organizing to do that. But and they also have to have these policies that I was saying. So I look at how they can regulate the market, how they can um, cultivate the market, especially when you have new technologies, new spaces like FinTech you mentioned. How can the government uh, facilitate the growth and the flourishing of FinTech, but equally while protecting customers? Because with innovation, you, you could have things that potentially are great, but could also result in failure, systemic failure, which can damage uh, the health of individual consumers, but also the economy. So governments have to be very smart in understanding very early, engaging early with these new technologies and players and understanding what are the risks. So in the UK, for instance, with FinTech, the government has helped the creation of an ecosystem by having a very interesting regulatory notion of a regulatory sandbox. So this is a space where any fintech company can try out experiments with real consumers supported by the government, but it is protected from the rest of the system. So if something goes wrong, then the rest of the system does not suffer. But if something goes right, then they can expand it to the rest of the system. So, you know, these are very important ideas and a lot of those ideas I explore in my book. 
Yep, that's brilliant. And I, what will I do in my show notes? I will link to the Amazon site to your books there. So if anyone wants to go check out all the three books we have mentioned in our conversation so far. Like, I just have like a question which was coming to my mind when you were saying about the fintech side of it. I mean, no, like London and FTAC, it's very, very predominantly finance oriented in, again, in UK. Do you, for, do you see that like the other sectors, like the law tech, the educational tech or the health tech, which had obviously kicked off a lot after COVID, especially like even through the NHS, like the remote health work and all that it's happening now in real time in last couple of months or a year of lockdown now. I can't believe it's a year of lockdown now. <laughs> So what's, do you have any take on those things? Do you see it's kind of changing on those, like elaborating the government is supporting more apart from FinTech as well? Yeah, I, absolutely. So FinTech is a big success in the UK and it's a very vibrant sector and the state has played a role. Um, but it's not the only sector where uh, the UK is doing well and that's thriving in the UK. Uh, so I mentioned in our business school in Cambridge, we have an accelerator we have regular what we call hackathons uh, venture weekends uh, on a particular theme and then the winners the best teams from the from the hackathon then uh, become part of our accelerator for that term uh, so we do lots of these on the annual cycle uh, of the university and we have done literally in addition to fintech we have done medtech we have done edtech we have done food tech um, we are going to look at, well, we have done RegTech for regulators. We are looking now at GovTech. We are looking at MarTech for marketers. So uh, there is a, in Cambridge, uh, Oxford, Imperial, there's a very lively life sciences sector, a lot happening in that space, uh, including MedTech, diagnostics, things like that. There's a very lively sector of EdTech because there are these great um, academic institutions and a lot of students and a lot of uh, universities. Um, you have a lot in uh, computing. I mentioned the Raspberry Pi, uh, not just software, hardware too. Uh, games, gaming, uh, there's a lot going on in Cambridge. Uh, in conservation and uh, the NGO charity sector too, there's a lot going on. So. Actually, uh, the UK has many, many sectors and the government is doing many things. So in my book, in, in, in the new book, this one, I look at also autonomous vehicles and how the government in the UK is nurturing this new nascent sector by bringing together all the different players, big companies, big car companies, small car companies, insurance companies, uh, software companies, cybersecurity, people, universities, all coming together to collaborate in consortia on little experiments to see what they can learn about the technology uh, so that this can flourish. So I think you know that approach of the regulatory sandbox is something you won't just have in FinTech, it will be in all these other areas too. Uh, well, that's amazing to know. And if someone wants to read about this stuff, is it available in Cambridge website? Like, can I find it out? Then I'll link it in my show notes as well. Is it available? Yeah, yeah. So you uh, you just have to Google for the Cambridge Entrepreneurship Center, and you can look for Cambridge Venture Weekends uh, and the Accelerator, and you can see uh, you know all the different uh, venture weekends they've had so far, um, and of course how the Accelerator functions. And uh, you know you can 
you can apply to participate in these events and be part of the accelerator. Uh, if as long as you have an idea, you have a team, and somebody in your team has some link with Cambridge, not the university. They don't have to be a student of the of the university. They just have to have some link with the town because we we feel that you know there are many accelerators. And what we are trying to do is to nurture the local ecosystem. So uh, yes, you can find all this uh, on the web and it will tell you more about how you can participate if you would like to. So like just a random follow-up question on that one. So someone, if someone is doing probably an online course from Cambridge, is, is that uh, accounted as a connection to Cambridge as well? I think, I think it will be counted as a connection to Cambridge uh, because the idea is to open it up to anyone who has some link with Cambridge. I think that will certainly count. No, it's just that me, my Jugar brain, probably the Indian brain kicking out and asking that question. Okay, what if someone ca cannot find someone from mm -hmm. the Cambridge location or have no one in the team who is from Cambridge, maybe from other areas of UK? So what happens then? Can, can someone have an online course going on that because there are like extremely good online courses and people who are working probably full time would be much more accessible, but also have the idea, but also want to be part of the ecosystem. Can they do it roundabout way? So I don't know the exact answer. You will have to check the website for that and ask the people in the accelerator. I think that it might be possible. But another way is actually connect with people who are in Cambridge who might be good members of your team. Because I think that's a, you'll be killing two birds with one stone. One is that will give you access to the accelerators and other things like that. But more importantly, you might get access to somebody who really could be a good team member, uh, not only because they have some technical background, but maybe because they have the networks that you would like to tap into. If they have been in Cambridge for a while, they will know people uh, you know, in the ecosystem and it'll be easier for you to also break into that wider ecosystem. Yeah, that's, that's so many ideas for like go and explore too. Thank you so much for saying that it kind of helps. One of the objective for my own podcast is like, you know, I try to get into, get the stories where the journey begins because sometimes often I'm a very big fan of all, like some of the very popular podcasts, but there you get all the billionaires coming in and just talking about it. So it's like you'd never start or you just start, it's always the story of the success, but no one yeah. talks about what happens when you are just going through that. No one interviewed Elon Musk when he was struggling or like probably broke, right? no one did that and even when he talks about his success today people when hear it kind of doesn't it doesn't relate to them in a way because they think oh he is a one of the richest man in the world or now the richest man in the world so it doesn't count but someone doesn't state the story when everyone is struggling broke or it's not working yet can it work so my idea or concept is to go to those people and probably facilitate in my nano nano way what are the things you you can do it like and educate it and in general it's very interesting also this space is absolutely interesting so i will now go back to your career as a marketing professor i'm a student i used to be a student of marketing it was my major so is there any myth about marketing because there in mark 
you know, I love marketing. I love it completely with my whole heart. It's, I feel marketing can be used in any aspect of life, just not only marketing. Whether you do a presentation or you are going in a board meeting, marketing can be used. And that was one of the reasons I chose that subject. But there are also quite bad myths about marketing, which goes on. So as a professor who kind of teaches students and next generation, what are the things you have to say to them? If someone wants, like probably it's not very convinced to choose marketing as their subject, but you, but your our view is yes, they should and why that should be. Yeah, um, you know, so what I think and what I say is essentially that um, the same thing. I, I really believe that marketing is a very fundamental uh, aspect of success in life. Um, as you said, uh, whether it's you as an individual who has to market yourself uh, on the job market to companies, to clients, to customers, so whether it's yourself and you're branding yourself or it's your company that you're working for, whether it's a startup or a big company, or if it's an NGO, or even if you're working for the government, all these organizations have to engage with somebody in the marketplace, somebody outside the organization, a customer, a client, uh, a citizen. You have to uh, engage with them. You have to attract them you have to select them, you have to then uh, create a relationship with them, you know, give them a reason to engage with you. And you have to maintain that relationship over time. So that to me is marketing, that's the heart of marketing, is finding a customer, keeping the customer, delighting the customer. And how do you do that? You do that by really understanding the customer, that's market research, and then you respond to that understanding on an ongoing basis, and that's innovation. So to me, these things are very closely linked. And I think that any company that wishes to uh, grow, survive, thrive, has to absolutely understand how to do that. That's the key. Everything else follows. Yes, you need to have finance. Yes, you need to have good HR. Yes, you need to have good operations. That follows from the basic purpose of an organization. Get a customer, keep the customer, delight the customer. Yes, agree. Thank you so much for that. But I, I will probably say to my audience, I love marketing and you are a professor of marketing. So it can be a bit of biased view, but let's go with it. We kind of go for team marketing here. But one thing which kind of just came to my mind when you were speaking about the customer side of it, when I was at B-School, the, the thing which was taught was like customers are king. Customers are always correct. So when I when I started my career early, I was always like that customer is king customer is always correct and uh, but then few years down the line I kind of came through this customer is not always right but if you really want to help customer you need to find out a way to communicate it to them not in a way obviously they will freak out but maybe they are not right and they, you have to say what is the alternative which is more fitting or right for them any tips or tricks or your observation on that scenario? Yeah, that's uh, that's a very good observation. Um, you know, the way I see it is that consumers are powerful, right? And not not necessarily that they're the consumer is always right. The consumer is always powerful because the consumer decides. The consumer may not be objectively right, 
Yeah. But they, if they think they are right, then that's what matters because then they can, if they think that you don't have something for them and they think they are right, they will go somewhere else. So it's more that the customer is king in that sense. The customer is powerful because the customer has the right or the power to decide and to decide that, you know, what you have offered them is not good enough, even if it is very good. So um, how do you really deal with that problem? I think that's where the challenge of getting customer insight comes from. You have to engage with customers. You have to ask them what they want and need, but they may not be able to tell you or because they don't know or they cannot articulate it or they tell you something that they think they want, but actually that's not what they want. Okay. And that's what, you are, that's what you are getting at is how you discern what it is that the customer actually wants, then develop it and then convince them that that's what they actually want. And that's where the talent, the art and science of marketing comes in. It's not so, that's why it's not so easy. I know that's when you can actually make it. And sometimes it doesn't go right as well because it's always, you cannot convince everyone. Probably this is not what you need right now. This is not a correct way to go about, but then they are so set on their way. It's just, you have to like, okay, go ahead and take it. It's your money. It's going to be a waste, but here you go. <laughs> well, now I will kind of probably go a bit popcorn style of like the interesting question. I it comes coming to my mind is like you have written a lot of books. What are the books are your favorite? Like I know there are so many hundreds of amazing books. I'll probably reiterate the question in a way, kind of. Uh, what are the last few books which kind of had an impact on you? Probably that's a better way of asking it. Well, actually, to be very honest with you, uh, I, I read, I don't read that much nonfiction now, certainly not much about business books or even academic papers. I prefer reading fiction uh, and literature, um, uh, poetry, things like that. So um, probably the most uh, impressive book I read recently was something called Homeland Elegies which is by uh, an immigrant. It's about the immigrant in the US. In, in this particular case, he is of Pakistani descent. His father is Pakistani, came to the US. He grew up in the US, was born in the US. It's called Homeland Elegies. And it's a, it's a beautiful kind of biographical, very uh, insightful, thoughtful book on uh, the status, the nature, the position, the identity of the immigrant uh, in a country like the US. I mean, it's beautiful out because uh, literally yesterday I was doing a debate club and my question was like, what's your cultural identity? How do you integrate the social, ethnic and racial identity? Because people who are multicultural or second culture kid or third culture kid, they do struggle. There is no straight away answer to that. So it's yeah. a very, very topic close to my heart. So I will give it a try. Can you sp uh, spell the spelling for the, like for the author or like, so I can find it out? Uh, I don't remember the author's name exactly now. I just remember the book is called Homeland Elegies. And I can tell you later who the oh, author is. No, I, will try to, I will try to find it out and or otherwise I'll reach out to you so I can link it on the show notes as well in case someone wants to go and yeah. check out. I'll tell you now, yeah. And 
so the book way is gone so is is there any any anything like any failures you have i like asking this question is there any failures which was the like a good learning lesson for you i ask i love love this question because i think failures and heartbreaks are biggest teachers <laughs> yes so first of all the author is ayad akhtar ayad akhtar okay yeah homeland allergies um yeah failure of course all the time i mean um and it's never easy uh, doing anything you are very likely to fail particularly if you try something risky uh, something new um but uh, you just have to pick yourself up and try again and usually you know the more you fail the more you learn to deal with failure so i can tell you from my own personal experience um uh, i have had to deal with failure all the time as an academic you know how uh, what uh, counts in academia is uh, peer reviewed papers uh, technical papers scientific papers if you will not books they don't value books <laughs> although books are very nice to write um so you know every time i have published a paper and even presented a paper at a conference uh, you can get very harsh criticism and uh, you can usually you get criticism sometimes very harsh and very often your paper will be rejected not just uh, the first time you submit it sometimes you get go through many rounds you spend many years and then it gets rejected very recently i had a paper that was rejected after three rounds and four years and it was very painful as an experience then we revised it sent it to another journal it got rejected again but you keep trying you can't give up uh, especially if you believe in your idea and even with books uh, i would say it's not uh, always success you often have failures your book proposal may not be accepted or your proposal accepted then they don't like what you've written this new book there there are 10 chapters in it uh, i had two chapters uh, when i had a draft that my editor said they don't work you have to replace them and they were one was on the us one was on china i spent significant amounts of time researching and writing them and i had to drop them uh, and i had to come up with new chapters uh, but i can honestly say that initially it was very painful but over now i think that's great it saved my life because the book would have been embarrassing with those two chapters it's so much better with the new chapters that i wrote so i've learned to see that you get when you get criticism you have to weigh it up value it and often it can if you respond it can be for your own uh, improvement as a person as a as a as an academic as a writer as a communicator etc beautifully put uh, i have to ask like you are talking about presentation and stuff people talk about like the importance of public speaking but when i feel teachers or professors they have the ultimate art of public speaking or they have the most scariest job because i remember myself as a student we are not always interested but when a professor or teacher come and if they get the attention of the class they are doing public speaking like in day in day out so any stories or anything which comes to mind i i'm just surprised for why people don't associate this to professions when it is i think it's a part and parcel of this teaching yeah. and education yeah and uh, i can remember very well uh, when i was first preparing as a phd student preparing my first class to teach how terrified i was that first day i had to go in but luckily our professors then had 
they knew that it's not easy to go into uh, teaching your first class. So they gave us a training session uh, of a few hours, but where we practice these things, how to prepare your, you know, what you're going to say, always have a plan of what you're going to say, how will you say it, write it down, say, what are you going to do? Have a PowerPoint presentation, obviously that helps you structure it. Go in, uh, practice this in front of a mirror, saying, you know, hello, welcome. I'm going, today we are going to discuss three things. Here are the three things. Then talk about each of the three things. And at the end say, these are the three things we studied. You know, these simple things, they helped a lot. I also went, I sat in a class that was taught by a senior professor two days before I had to teach the same class. So it was very fresh in my mind. I saw how the professor did it and I did it. So uh, that's how I learned. And you just, the more you do it, the better you get at it. But I can honestly say that after 25 years of teaching, I still worry about my class the night before. And that's good because that makes sure that I take it seriously. Uh, I still worry about anything like details. Uh, you know, what if somebody asked that question? Have I prepared it? What if we're going to do this exercise? Have I prepared it? Have I given them the right instructions? Do I need to reword that? You know, little things like that. Uh, and it's the fear of failure that makes you anticipate and do a better job. But, you know, I will say, I will add another point to that. Probably you are a very good professor and you're brilliant at it because you care because often when people stop caring they get complacent and after so many years if you're caring that much before every session that 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 kind of to me is an indicator how much you love what you do and how much you care for your students that you are uh, like you know you are adding value to their curriculum not just going probably you know all those subjects by heart after te teaching it many times, but even then, if you think about it every day, then it tells me that you care a lot about that. So that well, that's true, and it's because of the students. You know, I uh, whenever it's it gives us great pleasure. It gives me great pleasure to speak to my students, to see them. To see, uh, but I also care because I I was there myself, and I know the struggles when you are young. Um, you have so much pressure on you. Um, and now with COVID, I've seen the pressures on our students and um, I feel for them. And that's, I think, another factor because um, I also learn a lot from my students uh, about my subject, but also about life, you know, and uh, business, uh, like entrepreneurship, things like that. So it's a two-way street. We learn from each other. That's brilliant. I mean, I can ask you a question oh, again, like I can go through it. So probably I will need to have a follow up with you before wrapping up, uh, wrapping up the show. What, what, what I will ask you one question. Is there any mission statement in your life, Jaydeep? Like maybe it's personal, professional, or it can be combined all together. Something you want to do, something you want to change or something you want to impact on. Yeah, great question. I don't think I have ever sort of consciously thought about uh, a mission statement. I don't have any like quote or anything, but uh, I think what you said earlier, you know, and it goes with marketing. It's a sense of kind of service of having uh, something to offer people to make their life better, whether it's my students or other academics or managers or people working in government to help them to do their jobs better, to make other people's lives better. I think that's what motivates me. That's brilliant. That's, that's perfect way to wrap up the show. And thank you so much 
for coming to my show. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time and also for your wonderful questions and comments.